From the folks at Not Safe for Mom Group, this is the Not Safe for Mom Group podcast, where we bring you real moms telling you real stories about their lives. The stories that usually take a few glasses of wine or a whole lot of trust to get someone to open up about. These are the stories that are often kept in the vault that we only hear from a best friend, but once we hear them, we recognize something of ourselves in them. It's a relief to know that whatever crappy thing we've gone through, someone else has experienced it too. And now that that's out there, we can support one another through it. I'm your host and the founder of Not Safe for Mom Group, Alexis Barag Cutler. I'm also a mom of two, and after having kids, have had to face some of the more complicated parts of my past and present. And whenever I've done so, it's always helped me connect with people, which is why this work is so important to me. Welcome to Mom Group. So today we have a guest who is a good friend of mine. We're going to say she's anonymous, an anonymous friend. And one of the very first things we talked about um, when we met each other, because we're both super oversharers, um, was the story of her first marriage. And after she told me, I think we both said to each other, this would make such an amazing podcast episode. Um, but I didn't have a podcast and, um, and it was like so far away as a possibility, but now I do. So, um, she was my number one pick to be, uh, one of my first guests on the show. And you might have a friend in your lives, uh, listeners who says, Oh my God, my ex was a complete psychopath, sociopath, or maybe that's something that you've experienced yourself. But my guest today um, actually did have an ex who was an actual sociopath, and she's going to talk about that experience with us today. Um, but first, I want to introduce my anonymous friend guest. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. First of all, Alexis, I am so over the moon excited that you have started this podcast. I think it's a natural fit for Not Safe for Mom Group. I've been a member of Not Safe for Mom Group since the, its inception. And that's one of the ways that we met was at events that you were hosting for NSFMG and we became fast friends. I work in the motherhood space. I have worked in the motherhood space since I was 21 years old and I am almost 40. I am an author, a birth educator, and a prenatal and postpartum massage therapist. I'm sure some of you out there can probably place me just because you probably see me in the Not Safe for Mom group ether. Um, but yeah, today I'm anonymous. So welcome to my story. So are you currently married? I mean, I know the answers, but I want to share it with my guests. Um, are you currently married? Um, how many kids do you have? What's the situation, your current situation before we dive into the past? I am currently married. I have two children, a four-year-old and an eight-year-old, and I am living in New York City, working mom. That's me. And... What was life like for you? What was it? 15 years ago? So when we met? When okay. you met your ex. So I met my ex in 2004. I was 21 years old, about to turn 22. I had just moved to Australia literally the day before. No, he was not Australian. 
but he was an expat from a different country. And we were both there to study massage therapy. We were in the same course. We were in a very clinical course of massage therapy. So it was about like being able to work alongside a physical therapist, a chiropractor, um, an osteopath. And we met literally like the elevator doors opened and he was there and walked into the elevator and we became fast friends and then became fast more than friends. How long were you guys dating before you felt like this was the one? It was, I was so young and I was so not primed for early marriage. My parents had met later, married later, and they'd always told me, you don't become who you are until you're 30. So like, don't even consider getting married because you will probably live to regret it. Mm -hmm. And I took that really seriously. And then I promptly met someone when I was 21, this man, and, um, we dated sort of on and off. It was a little bit tumultuous. I was sort of, I, I definitely had some oats to sow and I did not, and he was so into me. Um, and I always say about pretty much anything in my life that someone liking me is the most attractive thing ever. Like I am a Libra, I crave affirmation. So I was just, you know, that was like so attractive to me. And he was also such an interesting, interested, like engaged and engaging person. So warm, always the life of the party, but not in like a, bravado kind of way. Um, it was more like this quiet warmth with, that would like grow with time. And then, you know, he was like, like being your person and like being the father of your children. Eventually. Yes. I mean, at the beginning, again, really young dating, living overseas, only planning to be there for a year and a half, which turned into five. And it wasn't really until I had gone overseas, traveled by myself, like left Australia for about a year and traveled by myself on and off um, that I really realized that he was in fact the person I wanted to be with. Like I went so emotes, met some incredible people who I'm still very close with to this day and came back to him in Australia and was like, you're the one I want this. I want this life. I want us to start a family together. I want us to move together. You know, we both knew that we didn't want to be in Australia probably long-term because it was so far from both of our families. And so we, I was like, let's commit to each other, get some visas in countries that we can cohabit in for eternity and do this thing. And you lived then you moved to Cali? Moved in, lived in Australia for five years, then moved to California, was in California for four, five years. I mean, he and I were in California until we split up, which was five years. So he and I were, we got married in 2008 and we split up in 2013, but we'd been together at that point for nine years. So when did like the baby come into the equation? Did you like decide you wanted to have children together? And... Absolutely, 100%. Um, he, from the time he met me, a big part of his sort of like love for me was you know, you're going to be such an, you are such an amazing nurturing person. Keeping in mind, I was a doula, massage therapist, all of those mushy, gushy things like archetypally nurturing, um, that, you know, he always knew that he had been given so much love by his mother, that he had so much love to give. And that, you know, he always knew that we would be parents together. And I am not a planner in that way. I don't, like I haven't like, been dreaming of a wedding since I was a little girl. I've never thought about any of that. I'm very much in the present moment in my life. And so I knew that we would nurture together. I assumed we would have kids together. It was never really a question. Um, it was just sort of a question of when. There was no pressure. But when I turned 30, it was 
time. Like I, I felt it, he felt it, it was time. And so it was very planned, took out my IUD, you know, we got pregnant essentially that night and then, and it was like the most exciting, wonderful time. And we were early for our friend group to be having kids. Most of my friends didn't really start having kids until like mid thirties. So bring us to the birth. Um, well, let's, okay. So the birth happens and we had a home birth. It was all beautiful. It was a typical labor, 24 hours, you know, whatever. I remember pictures you showed me. Yeah. And they looked really warm. Yeah. He looked like this was the time of his life. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, he was so good at showing up. He loved to like be the one, you know? So it was him, my midwife, two midwives, doula, my mother and my father. Because why not? And no, my parents are not hippies. But your father um, had a big role. Yeah, my dad's a photographer. So he came and took pictures and all the things. So that was really amazing for me, actually. So the birth happens, postpartum, and we're just doing the thing. Um, he starts to like be gone a lot of the time, but not in a way that is suspicious. Very much in a very, very typical way that I see a lot of clients operate and friends, which is frequently the the male of the species <laughs> will become very, uh, very driven to provide. And honestly, it's not even just the male of the species. It's actually the non-birth parent, regardless mm-hmm. of sexual orientation, sex, you know, gender, any of that. So it's really just this feeling of, of deep responsibility and commitment. And so I was like, okay, obviously I understand that like, you know, he took two weeks, which was more than a lot of American men take. And he then was like right back in the office, taking meetings and doing stuff, you know, from like 7am coming home really late. Um, but he had a, he was in sales. Like he had to go entertain to mm-hmm. land accounts and sell more so he could make more money for us. So, you know, I was planning to take some time off and I'm a small business owner, which means I don't get, I didn't get any kind of maternity leave or pay for taking time off. So I had to go back to work pretty, pretty early. And we needed to make up for that loss of income for that time that I was taking off. After your first kid, it's so traumatic. Your body is just totally rocked, wide open, no matter how the baby came out. And your whole world is turned upside down. Your tits are a mess. You know, it's like, it's really fucked up. <laughs> like just brass tacks and it can be beautiful. But for the vast majority of us, it's like a huge shock that we just like pinked over with like rosy hues later, which thank God for that. But, you know, I was not stoked. I also was not clinically depressed or anxious. Thank goodness. There's there's definitely an in-between. There's Mm -hmm. the, I guess they call it the baby blues. Mm -hmm. But when you call it the baby blues, it really, I don't know, it makes me think of like, like a pale blue nursery. So no, it is way worse than that. Yeah, no, it's infantilizing yeah. actually. What it does is it creates a cutesy sort of vision out of something that is actually just an ill-supported normal developmental crisis in every huge mammal's life. And, and that is actually for a different podcast to talk about like what postpartum is and maybe we'll do that. Yeah. But, but anyways, suffice to say that, that, I was okay, but I was also processing this huge moment in my life. And, and that's what was happening. And luckily you had your parents, but he was not there. Yes. I had my parents. He was not there. Now our daughter did not stop crying for 12 actual weeks, actually. And on her 12th day, um, 12 week birthday, she smiled for the first time. And it was like my whole life changed. 
but that was also the day that my whole life changed <laughs> because that smile led to stuff that I never could have predicted. So what, so what happened next? Her smile and then the event. So she smiles. I am like, oh my gosh. And it's crazy that I have videos of this day because, and I hadn't taken a lot of videos because there was, I'd taken a lot more still photos. She wasn't really that exciting before this, <laughs> but she smiled. I have all these videos of the two of us, my ex and I like hanging out with her and like cooing. And I was just, it was, it was the first moment where I didn't wonder if I'd made a huge mistake by becoming a mother, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and I was like, no, this was a great choice, right? And <laughs> all of us who are parents know that those swings, those massive swings of emotional reality can happen so quickly. And this is just a massive pendulum swing. Mm-hmm. And I put her down for a nap. I'd figured out like the daytime nap scene. And I was like, oh my God, killing mom game. You know, we went on a long hike, got coffee and came back and baby smiled. And my husband at the time says, go, what, go put her down for a nap. I'm going to hop in the shower and then let's watch the next episode of Breaking Bad. We were in the middle of the series and I was like, game on. That sounds amazing. And I was like, but let's also watch my birth video. And he's like, oh my gosh, yes, let's watch the birth video. Because I was like, okay, I now feel like I'm in a place where I can do this mentally and emotionally and not be like fully re-traumatized. And the smile was like the the pot at the end of the rainbow, you know, the pot of gold that I needed to get myself there. And so I, um, he goes and takes a shower. I put her down. I queue up Breaking Bad and I realize that I don't have that. I'm not sure where the video is. And, and so I say to him, where's the iPad? Because I know he filmed it, but then iPad, I was like, where's the iPad? I want to check for the video. And he's like, oh no, it's not on the iPad. It's on my computer. I transferred it. So I go to it and he's like, just go open it up. And we'd shared, we shared computers all the time, like for internet stuff. And so I, and we're the kind of couple that would have no problem being like, oh, check my email for the itinerary or whatever. Like there was no feeling of, um, it's not, it's not that we didn't have privacy. It's just, there was like no paranoia, no jealousy, nothing no, to hide, no concerns and nothing to hide open book. So I go and I check his, I look through and I'm like, huh, like, how am I even going to find it? No idea what file this is going to be. And I don't see anything on the desktop. That's obvious. And so I just search for movie files thinking like, how many can there be? Right. Keeping in mind, this was also eight years ago. It wasn't like we were all like filming a bunch of like stuff on our computers and phones in the same way that we are now. So I look on, I, I scroll the the dot move files and there are like tons of them. And what's weird is I'm looking at these little thumbnails and they all kind of, I'm basically just looking for like flesh because I was <laughs> naked. And so I'm just like, where is flesh? Flesh will be me. And I'm looking and I see immediately that in fact, there are dozens and dozens, like I, can't scroll far enough thumbnails of flesh. And I'm like, oh, and I'm just like going through doing my thing. No big deal. I'm like, huh, maybe. And I'm thinking like, it kind of was that look when, when like, um, you're just looking at stills from a film. And so I was like, that's what my brain registered as I click on the first one, sort of thinking that they were all part of the same film. And it's, it's somebody, it's definitely a naked person, this person is a woman. She is showering. She's clearly not me. She's like a six foot something blonde woman. <laughs> and I'm like, those of you who do not know me, because I am anonymous, do not know that I'm a five, four brunette. Right. So I'm like, mm, not me. I keep looking another one. And, I'm, and then I'm, then it's like, my brain is catching up to my fingers. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Oh fuck. 
this is somebody showering and it's just like clearly a voyeur film. Like someone has hidden the camera or made it look as though they've hidden the camera and filmed this. I feel like I've like seen the 60 minutes episode mm-hmm. on this, you know, when I was like younger and I'm like, this is so weird. Like I had no idea that he was into this, but like, okay. It's not like there's some like really whack, weird shit happening on these films. It's just like the whole thing. The fact that I didn't know this about him was just like interesting to me because I'm really open to a lot of different kind of like vibes. And I was like, weird. Yeah. Like you could have gotten behind it and been like, it could have been something produced. There's like so many, Totally. Yeah. And, and like, he was never like, I just want to watch you shower. You know what I mean? And yeah. then I would have been like, cool. Like that's your let's, king. let's like Fine. make this happen somehow, some way you stand outside and work this out. You know what I mean? But like, <laughs> so it's not like I'm a prude or like, you know, I'm easily shocked by any means. And I was like, this is so funny to notice about him. Oh, well, moving on. And then I click on the next video thinking, oh, this one must be me. No, it is the same woman. Okay, the next one, it's a different woman. And the next is a different. Okay, so needless to say that I am starting to realize that there are a lot, dozens of films of women showering. And I'm also starting to realize that the first three videos are one of our best friends from when we used to live overseas. And I recognize the bathroom and I recognize that he must have taken these when we were visiting them at their apartment in Europe several years ago, several years before this, like five years before this. And I am like, oh, okay, there has to be an explanation for this. There's a lot going on in your head at once. Meanwhile, what I am describing right now is like as if I've slowed down the like mental tape of my mind, because in fact, this is actually all happening in about 30 seconds. He, meanwhile, is turning off the shower and I can hear him drying off. And I'm like, (gasps) so now I've got like the adrenaline flowing. I'm starting to kind of like shiver a little bit. And I'm like, what am I going to do? What is this? And I... I stopped and I can remember so clearly where I was standing and exactly what I could see out the window in front of me. And I took a deep breath and I just thought, okay, this can't be what I think it is, but it sure looks like what it looks like it is. And so I got to make a decision right now what I'm going to do about this. And I was like, but it can't be what I think it is, but I should get some evidence. So I'm starting to look through the other films. I don't recognize the other women right away. And I, and I, I never got to get through more because he's coming out of the bathroom. I go into Google. I, the files are so big. I can only email myself through Gmail one of those because I still wasn't sure what I was going to do about it. Keeping in mind now we're at maybe a minute and a half post like discovery. And I know that I want to have this in my back pocket for whatever's about to go down. I need to have this. And so I send myself the video and then I run down my list of options. Like Jesus Christ, what does a woman do in this situation? And then it starts to become a little out of body right now. It's almost like I'm like channeling some other like higher intuition and kind of focus. And I'm like, all right, break it down. What does one woman do? One woman, woman A, with, erased, a new, with a newborn. With a newborn. Yep. Yeah, by the way, with a 12-week-old sleeping in the other room who just smiled for the first time that day and your vagina is like possibly still torn open. Mm-hmm. Unclear. And I, I decide, I say, okay, so woman A has, she erases it. It is like so too much to bear that she erases it or she closes the computer and it never happened. She doesn't say anything. She doesn't do anything. And she just, it's just toxic within her for the rest of her days. 
okay, that's not me. Woman B, what does woman B do? Woman B confronts him and then lords it over him for the rest of their time on earth together. And it's just so toxic and gross. And she has this weird, sick power and it's not good for anybody. And I'm like, that's definitely not me. Woman C decides that she can stick around for the rehabilitation and really commits to, this is my partner. I love him. We have a baby together. I don't want to blow my life up, this child's life up. I am, what, how is this any different from alcoholism or from like a drug addiction or, or whatever, you know, like this is something that he clearly has a problem with. I'm going to help him. Then I think of the final and last person, which is the person who just says, fuck it and blows it all up for some really short-term, intense, acute period of pain and trauma and drama. And that is in service of a future that is healthier and brighter and clearer for everybody. And I decided that is what I'm going to do. And so I sit down on the bed, but but first I, I'm still in the mind of like, it, this can't be what I think it is. I'm sure that like my friend's husband, who I'm also very close with, who I had now emailed the video of the woman I recognized. I'm sure that that woman's husband took it and sent it to him and they're all in on this together, which while that would be weird, would not be criminal. <laughs> so we'll just start with those brass tacks. So he comes out of the bathroom and I have left the one of the films, one of the videos up on like the quick time window up on the computer on the laptop that I know he has to walk past to come sit down on our bed to watch Breaking Bad because that's still the plan. And I'm sitting on the bed and he walks around to round and past the computer and he says, what's this? And I say, oh, that's our friend. I name her showering on your computer. Like you didn't know? And he goes, that's so weird. And just closes the computer, puts on boxers and comes and sits down on the bed next to me. Like he is just going to move on NBD. And this is when I start to really tune in to what's actually going on and to really understand that this man has like a deep clinical pathology and that it's beyond just that he enjoys watching people without them knowing and violating that boundary that he actually enjoys crafting opportunities for this. Hmm. And I'm kind of starting to appreciate all that has gone in to the many years of him cultivating this. And it's sort of starting to come together in one of these like cyclone moments of intuitive knowing that has nothing to do with anything hippie or woo-woo. Like it's not magic. It's just that I think that we are so much more perceptive than we give ourselves credit for. Mm-hmm. And you let a window open up. Uh-huh. And it had been there all along. You just uh-huh. didn't see it. And and what was so crazy about it was that this was not like, I don't know. This was not somebody who you would have been like, oh yeah, like this is a pervy dude. It's a pervy dude. Like, like, didn't sound like, like we all know people who you'd be like, yeah, dude. I'm not really surprised that like so-and-so, so-and-so was like doing that. Like he's always been pervy. No, this guy, the opposite. So I'm like, I got it. I'm like, this can't fly. So he sits down on the bed and he picks up the remote control and I push it out of his hand. And I say, no, you, I need you to tell me why you do these things. 
And he says, do what? And I said, why is, why are those, why are these videos on your computer? What is going on? Why do you do this? Why is that video there? And I'm pointing over at the computer and he says, that video is on my computer because when we were visiting our friends in Europe five years ago, I hid a camera in my dog kit and I filmed her showering every single day that we were there. Stone-faced, totally sober, doesn't battle ash, no nothing. It was the coldest, scariest thing. It was like a different person was talking to you? 100%. Oh my God. And then he starts to go on about, you know, I don't even remember what he said next, but he was sort of trying to like move on from it almost. And I was like, no, 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 no. You're going to tell me why you do this. Why do you do this? And then he, then he kind of like puts his head back and takes a big sigh in and looks up. And now he's starting to use his creative mind. Like now he's trying to cover, he's trying to figure out what the right answer is now because he's already given the factual answer. Mm -hmm. And now he's trying to, he's basically trying to do what a lot of sociopaths do, which is like toggle between the narratives and the realities that they kind of keep separate Mm -hmm. and the way that they can keep it separate is that they are always embodying one in one space and another in another space, whether it's a private space or with another like lover or whatever it is. And so his private space of like doing these things is this cold person. And then his person outwardly, you know, has a lot of compassion and warmth and a lot of excuses and understanding. And it's like one of the greatest parts. So then he starts to talk about how it's been so hard for him because I've been postpartum and we haven't had sex in such a long time. Minding, please keep in mind that I'm 12 weeks postpartum and I had complications after my birth. Okay. (laughs) And so I, by no means was cleared for sexual activity by me, most (laughs) importantly, but by any medical practitioner. And don't forget that this video was taken five Year. These videos that I had up on the screen that he saw, which were the only ones that he was actually answering to at that time, were from five years prior. Yeah, you weren't postpartum by now, but he was just grasping at whatever he could reach, right? And he felt, you know, sufficiently vindicated by that. And I let him have it. Now, what's also important to know is that right before he started to tell me what, why he did this, you know, to give me this litany of excuses, I took my phone out and I said, you know what, I'm going to record you saying this. And I recorded him and I told and on the camera, I said, I'm recording you. Tell me why you do this. And I think that's part of why he started going down like the line path, right? Like back into that mode. Um, but I have the whole thing on tape where he talks about doing it, why he did it, et cetera. Um, and I'm so glad I had that honestly, because in the days and weeks and months, I haven't watched it in years now, but that video was so, and the video I mailed, was able to email myself is so helpful in, in continue in, in carrying the thread for myself, that mm. this was not a constructed drama that I created, that this was not, that I didn't conflate this with some other set of postpartum mm. feelings that I was not in any way creating this narrative. This was real. This happened. It is undeniable based on the evidence at hand. That's such a good point because sometimes the further we get from an event like this, 
we can sort of gaslight ourselves into being like, did I create that whole problem? Maybe it wasn't so bad. Maybe my life would have been different had I made a different choice. I mean, being a single mom is so hard. And every single time I was in a dark place about that, I just imagined that if I wasn't really confident in my choice and in my, not in my choice, I mean that, but if I wasn't confident in my perspective of the situation and my understanding of the facts, that would have been really hard for me to to stomach. It would have really been hard for me to stay the course Mm -hmm. that was inevitably and undoubtedly the right course. That's really such good advice Mm -hmm. for someone in that moment to, with consent, be like, I'm going to record this moment for myself. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's one of the greatest things that I did for myself and it's part of why I wanted to even record this podcast now, or just record this story, no matter where it goes, because I think I would like to do this a few times over the years, because I'm sure that the story, as I tell it, while the facts might be the same, my understanding, what I see has happened in my life, will of course change because I'm learning different things every day and the impact that this experience has on me mm-hmm. is different all the time. So what happened after that? How did you, like, what was the next step? How do you put your foot, like no one foot in front of the other? You're in this very raw and vulnerable place and now you've been so betrayed and he left or you, you made him leave. So I, I said, I said, you, I, I have this all reported to Um, I said to him, no, you need to get up and you need to leave this house right now. You are not a safe person. I like this kind of sexual deviancy is not something that I can house and you need to, you need to leave. I've now had a child with you. I've had a daughter. Uh, you are not a safe person. I just kept saying, you're not a safe person. You have to leave. You have to leave. You should take your passports with you and you should not come back here because when you leave, I will call the police. And he, and I literally, you guys, I jumped up. I ran over to the computer and I changed the passwords on all of our bank accounts right then. And I, and, and while I was doing that, he was just, packing things in a bag. And what was so weird was that he packed like barely any clothing I saw. And he packed like dozens and dozens of socks. He had so many black socks and he just had like armfuls of them from this big drawer. I was like putting them in a duffel bag. And I was like, he's very into a comfy foot, (laughs) but like, this is weird, but I'm also, my head is spinning. I mean, the adrenaline is like nothing that's ever coursed through my body before or since, except for the fact that I still get some PTSD moments, which will put me back in that state, Mm -hmm. um, to this day. But, um, I confronted him. He's packs up his shit. He goes and he's walking towards the front door. He turns around to grovel. And now he starts to say, say things that like, I can never not know. Like Sarah, I need you to know that I have done horrible, horrible things in my life and that I've had a problem since I was little and for a very long time. And I am so, I, I will do better. I need help. I need help. I, I do horrible, horrible things. I do horrible things. And I don't know about you guys, but taking videos of somebody is 
is a violation. And it makes me wonder knowing how, what an aberration this was, this knowledge of, of this behavior from the rest of his behavior, which is the scariest part. I wouldn't classify that as a horrible, horrible thing in the same way that he clearly meant it. So I don't know what else was going on, but mm. I also know that people don't do anything just one time. Mm. And usually if somebody's exhibiting a kind of behavior that is um, deviant, they're probably doing other things that may be really destructive. People write in to Not Safer Mom group, I mean, not all the time, but often enough about a discovery that they've made about their partner. And the question is, do I stay the course? Do I help them through this? Or do I get out? Because, you know, woman A, woman B, those mm-hmm. different scenarios that you run through, it's like, should, you know, I made a promise. I should, should I stay with this person, help them through their illness? How did you know that this was an illness that you could not stay the course for and like what was the number one reason that you wouldn't do that to yourself sexual deviancy and sexual violence are very very hard to treat it is certainly not impossible but it is not what I am trying to live with on my one time on earth as I view life And it is not something that I feel comfortable exposing or potentially exposing children to. I don't feel comfortable exposing friends to it or family. And I will not stand for living with it in my own home in a place where I'm also making myself vulnerable. I work with women I have for my entire career and I work with them in a very vulnerable space where I learn so much about women's sexual experiences and their experiences of violence all the time because birth will bring up all of that. Pregnancy and birth will bring up all of that. And I always endeavor to have a safe space for everyone I know and love. And I, I can't, I can't abide that that kind of behavior. And I'm not, that's not my journey to help someone through that. Um, and frankly, when we split up, I, our agreement was that he would go to therapy and start with visitation. And in the ensuing months, he didn't. And I'll tell you that, you know, we can even cut to the, to the present moment now. Mm -hmm. He has not seen our daughter since, or my daughter now, since the that day. (laughs) He's never seen her again. He never retained an attorney. He was making over $200,000 a year after tax. He, so, which is to say, certainly could have afforded one. And you would have allowed him to see her? With, with, if he, when, so we had agreed and we went to one, so I should back up. One of the primary things that I did that I would highly recommend everyone do if you're in a similar kind of situation, was that I vetted my understanding about the case with, against therapeutic, therapeutic clinical advice. So I actually went and sought out multiple forensic psychologists who specialize in people who are 
um, offenders, so sex offenders who were also victims, because the night that we split up, um, when I was, I'm so sorry, I feel like I'm jumping all over the place, but the story, it's like, how do you, the story is so many little components, but, um, after he left the house, he left, he was gone within 25 minutes, he leaves. And then he, I don't hear from him that day. Um, but he calls me that night. I go, I take our, my daughter and I go to stay with a friend and, um, I get a bunch of missed calls from him before I notice that he's been calling and I really have to sit with myself. Like, am I going to call him back? And then I was worried he was going to kill himself. And that honestly felt like it really wasn't fair to my daughter um, to let that happen. It was like, I feel so lucky in some ways that I was postpartum and had total like mama bear brain because I was just totally uncompromising and exactly who needed to be protected. And it wasn't me and it wasn't him. And it was definitely her. Um, And so I was like, you know, that's not fair for her to have that feeling. So I called, even though she was an infant at that time. So I called him back and he told me he was very panicky and he said, and his text messages were really panicky. Please just give me two minutes. Just please. I have to tell you something. I can explain everything. I have to tell you something. So maybe this is five of six hours later. And he says to me, I can tell you, I need to tell you why I do these horrible, horrible things. I I do these horrible things. And he just kept saying horrible things, which just mm. creeps me out, you know, to no end. It still is such like a weird, like, what were those things? I won't, I will hopefully never know, honestly. Um, but he said that he, and he, this is, these are exactly the words he used. He said, I was raped twice as a child. Once when I was four by a family member, by um, a distant family member who was in the priesthood. His family was very Catholic. And once when I was eight by a family friend who was visiting, they'd moved from one country to another. So visiting the new country that they were living in. And, um, I said, that's why I do these horrible things. I'm so sorry. I need help. And I said to him at that time, I am so sorry that these things happened to you. I wish you all of the healing. Do not be in contact with me again. Either I will be in touch with you or my attorney will be. And then I hung up the phone and I'm so proud of myself for drawing a boundary and for sticking to it. And I do again, think that those postpartum hormones actually were really helpful at that time because I, I, there was one focus and that was a boundary. And also you guys think about it. I've been with this person for almost a decade. If I hadn't seen any red flags, none, this person was not safe. And the last thing I needed was to be around this person where they could do an even more effective job at gaslighting me. Because when I look back, the very few things that I can sort of place were followed by such intense gaslighting Hmm. that in a million years, I would never have known that that's what was going on. And I'm just, I feel, and I really recommend this. I'm so, I feel so lucky that I, from the very beginning was like, I won't talk to you directly. Don't text me. Mm -hmm. Don't email me. Always go through my attorney. So smart. And that's how I intended to co-parent with him through an intermediary. You know, we were, we'd set up, you know, that we were going to have a co-parent, um, a parenting coordinator and this and that. And then he just disappeared. And we've never, like, he definitely never fought. That's kind of a blessing. He was in threatening emails 
um, about you can't do this and and, and that would send me like, I would just be apoplectic. You know, mm-hmm. I would like have legitimate panic attacks every time. And, um, and then he disappeared. And then you met somebody. And then I met somebody. I was not looking for a partner. I had a business. I had a house that I owned. I had a car that I owned. A baby. I had a baby that was amazing. I I needed somebody to have sex with, though. Because I enjoy that activity extracurricularly. (laughs) I'm enjoying an extracurricular sexual experience. And I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Now, you guys, you also have to remember, I've literally not had sex since a baby came out of my vagina. So what, how many years now is this? This is now, okay. So I, I got myself some sexual experience and I like very carefully chose the partner who I was going to have sexual, my first like postpartum sex time with, um, who I have slept with many, many years ago. And so I like knew, I literally like knew his genitalia already (laughs) and I knew him and I knew his way and we were very close friends. And I was like, this, this will work, but that's not the person who is now what I would say, like the love of my life, who I met at a dinner party when I was nine months post-divorce. Um, our daughter was a year old. And I say our daughter, because this man has now, we were married. We've been married for five years. If he's listening to this, when he listens to this, he's going to laugh because he will notice that I paused because I'm not even really sure it was five years. It might be six. I think it's five, but that's my bad. I'm not good at numbers, but we've been married for a while. Um, and we've been together for seven years, over seven years. And we, and he has adopted now our, my current husband's and my daughter. Um, and he adopted her. The paperwork finally went through uh, two weeks before our four-year-old was born, who we conceived biologically together um, and physically, if you must know. <laughs> and um, we, yeah, and we have this like amazing family and this amazing bond and it's, we celebrate adoption day and mm-hmm. yeah, and it's just friggin' awesome and we're super honest with her about her life. Mm-hmm. But with no always developmentally appropriately only what what do you say when she asks about her dad so we very quickly in the same way that I sought out a lot of help from forensic psychologists just to vet my own judgment so that I knew I wasn't depriving her of a father if it was like actually was this like and the thing we would all ask ourselves, like, we're women living in a society that objectifies our body all the time. Was this really that big of a deal? Were the things that he said to me afterwards really that big of a deal? You know, like, mm-hmm. should I be scared? And every forensic psychologist that I spoke with was like, yes, yeah. ma'am, you should be. And yes, he needs therapy before he has unsupervised visitation with your child. And yes, you need a co-parent coordinator. And that was so reifying to hear that. It made it very, you know, I understood that like my, my judgment was real and right and true. Um, and I did the same thing with her. What I did was I sought out a, an infant mental health specialist who is a psychologist that specializes in zero to six years old. Infant. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, they're amazing. They are amazing. And that was everything that gave me exactly what I needed, which was the, um, the advice that was tailored. It wasn't a book. It wasn't asking some friends for advice. It was 
somebody to guide us through what her development would would require from us to make sure that that there is no secret, that there's no big reveal. And those were the, the two takeaways where mm. secrets are poison and you should never have a reveal, a moment of like revelation. I mean, that happened to you. It was horrible. Yeah, when I was 13. No, no. no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, was already, I was thinking about my dad, who it turns out was married for six years before he met my mom. Um, and I didn't find that out till I was 13. And I was wrecked from mm-hmm. that for like mm-hmm. weeks. Oh my God. It's like, dude, it, that's not the play. Not the play. It's never the play. The big for me when my when I found out my husband also terrible yeah. revelation we don't like it humans no. don't like it so I really um we've what we do is we just explain we always answer her questions literally so um where's dad where where but she never has called him dad okay. or father but right. she couldn't speak and, and that was another decision we made you know it was, it's always my ex-husband or we use his first name um right her dad is a man that I'm married to now. Um, and we, um, yeah, we, we just tell her exactly what it is. So like why, you know, um, I don't know from the beginning, it was like, Oh, um, mommy was married before and mommy and her ex-husband were really, were very much in love, um, and decided that they wanted to have a baby, but it turned out that he didn't know how to be a daddy and he wasn't very respectful of people. Um, and, and wasn't very good at helping keep them safe. And what do mommies and daddies do? Mommies and daddies, you know, they buy you clothes, they make you food, they help, you know, put band-aids on when you hurt yourself. They're always there for you, you know, whether you're happy or sad or sick or healthy. And he just didn't know how to, to be that person, um, and to put his own needs aside. And that's something that a lot of parents don't learn either from their own parents or from other experiences in their lives. And, and that, so we're very, I also never want her to feel negative about her origin story. So it's very factual. It's not like it was really hard for me. Oh my God, I was devastated. Like we can talk about that when she's 25 mm-hmm. or whatever, but it's not now. And it's not when I've had too many glasses of wine when she's 13 mm-hmm. and like, <laughs> Oh my God, well, you don't even know what I did for you. Ma. You know, like those are conscious choices I make to not, to not divulge in that way. And, um, and I'm in a lot, I mean, not a lot of therapy, but I started seeing a therapist right away and I've been seeing the same therapist for, uh, once a week for eight years, basically now, so that I have a place to process all that. And it's not on my daughter's shoulders which is why we're doing this anonymously. Yeah. You had said something to me about that, why you wanted to make this anonymous Mm -hmm. because, you know, whose story is this after all? Whose story is this? And the fact is that it's a story. It is part of my story, but it's her origin story. And it is only out of respect for her that I never want my name. Honestly, like I don't, you know, like the facts of my life. And I'm like, oh, I know who that must be. Cool. Um, Fine. That's not an issue for me. I never want, it to be Googleable, where she could at some point in time or anyone that she, any of her peers could find that mm-hmm. somewhere in the annals of the interwebs. Yeah. Cause she'll, she'll do with the story, what she wants to do with it. The annals of the interwebs. The annals <laughs> of the internet, They are dark. They are sordid. Dark and dirty. <laughs> and very constipated annals. <laughs> Oh, on, on that, that note. note. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being so vulnerable with us and sharing your story. I know that this is going to help so many people. Um, a lot of people feel like they're alone in 
these experiences, but you know, you're sitting at a cafe and you're looking around and you don't know what other people have been through. You look on Instagram and everyone looks beautiful and perfect and happy. And that might be, but you don't know what they went through in the past to get there. And, you know, it doesn't make me happy to know that you suffered at all, but it helps me know like, like you and I have so much in common because we've both experienced pain in our lives and that's colored our whole, you know, that's why we're empaths. And it's really important. I think it's also how you know, uh, well, I mean, cliche after cliche, it's how I know what my strength is. It's how I know I can do things that uh, at face value seem like they're going to crush me or completely impossible or too complicated to tackle or whatever. It's like, it's about having a certain kind of confidence in your constitution as a, as a human to know that you can make the really hard, the, the obvious harder choice at the time and that that will probably serve you. Um, and I know that not all of the things that you did are available to everybody because, you know, it takes a certain amount of access to have forensic psychologists and, um, you know, be able to move or be able to stay with your parents and have them support you, um, you know, emotionally or, or just be there for you. But um, I, I think that there's so many great pieces of wisdom that you've shared with us today that will, that will help. And um, thank you again for, for being one of the very first special, special people of my life. And I'm and in the, in the, and on this podcast today. And um, if you like what you've heard today, please like, and subscribe for my first time saying that. Do you have any last parting words? I will make sure that I give some resources for um, the show notes on on different kinds of therapists and psychologists that you can access um, and also different agencies that you can work with. Um, and, and, you know, remember, you guys, that all different sorts of women do use public programs to bridge really hard times. And it's a complete fucked up quagmire. But that was something that I leaned hard into when I was considering all of this was what, what is it going to take if I, if I don't have the safety net that I'm hoping for in, in my family, um, being able to like literally come and help me physically. Um, and so I'll make sure that there are some resources. That's so nice. Thank you. Yeah, of course. I appreciate that. All right, everybody until next one. Bye mom group. Bye.